word, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. It is a, a blessing uh, for me to have the opportunity to preach for us this morning. The last time I was uh, preaching for us in the morning service, it might be a stretch of the memory, but it was two weeks back in July, and what we did was we looked at three uh, great gospel passages, three miracles of our Lord. Uh, and today, uh, we're going on to the next. I'm uh, going back and picking up where I left off. Uh, and for the last six months or so, uh, just to give you some context, Jesus has been uh, at, at Matthew's house um, after he forgave the paralyzed man and healed him. He calls Matthew as a disciple, and we see him eating with tax collectors and sinners, which, of course, the religious leaders are not a big fan of, and so he's found himself in more or less of a, a hostile Q&A. And even some of John's disciples show up and start asking him some questions. So he's in Matthew's house in these debates, and this is the context uh, that we're in as we, as we pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. This is the word of the Lord for us. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garments, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the reports of this went through all that district. Pray with me. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this profound gospel that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for these pictures of Jesus, what they teach us about his character Lord, about the character of the King that we serve forever and ever. We ask, Lord, that you would seal these words, these promises to our hearts. Lord, that they would fill us with hope and peace. We ask these things in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen. Question for you. What makes a good king? And go ahead and start listing characteristics in your head. I, I found a blog post that took a stab at answering this question, and I found it on a website called The Art of Manliness. A king, it said, is an archetype for a, a mature man. Is these characteristics. He is decisive. He lives with integrity. He protects his realm. He provides order. He inspires others. He blesses others. And he leaves a legacy. 
Now, these are fine things, of course, but as I'm sure you've already done in your head, we can add some biblical characteristics to the list. The foremost being that a king should love God and obey his commandments. We can basically think of, of Matthew's story so far as a story that helps us check the boxes, so to speak, of, of what would make a good Israelite king as we are introduced to Jesus. So he's from the line of David. Check. Other kings come and they bow down to him. Think of the Magi and think of Herod's false promise. Check. He casts a vision for his kingdom and he declares his law to everyone. There's somewhere on the mount. Check. And then here in chapters 8 and 9, we come to a list of miracles. Proofs that verify the announcement of John the Baptist and of Jesus that the kingdom of God is at hand. We see what happens to lepers and blind men and demons and storms and sinners and even dead people when Jesus takes them and brings them into contact with his new kingdom. Authority, check. Power, check. Even acting as a savior who protects his people when Jesus saves his disciples from the storm or when he forgives the paralyzed man. He's a protector. Check. But near the end of, of this section of miracles here in our passage, Matthew shows us a characteristic that usually doesn't make the list of a good king. But unfortunately, at the same time, it's one that we often take for granted when we think about Jesus. Here we see that, that Jesus is a caring king. Christ the king is a king who cares and cares tenderly and compassionately. The same Lord who rules over us, we can't miss the poignancy of this, is the one who knows all of our needs and meets them. That is a rare characteristic of a ruler indeed. And so this morning I simply want us to look carefully through this passage as it teaches us about Jesus our King and about ourselves. And the story gives us a nice outline to work through. It gives us three people. Three people to whom Jesus brings the kingdom of God in a personalized way. And the irony of each of these characters is part of the story. Each of them does something unexpected when faced with Jesus. So first we meet a ruler who kneels. And then we meet a shy woman who interrupts the narrative and finds herself at the center of attention. And then we meet a corpse, a dead person, who wakes up. A ruler who kneels a shy woman who interrupts, and a corpse that wakes up. So first, put your eyes with me on verse 18. Matthew here tells us just that a ruler came. But we actually know from the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, that he was the ruler of a synagogue. He was in charge of keeping order at that local synagogue, of organizing meetings, of, of making sure no unclean outcasts come in, and so on. Mark and Luke even tell us that his name was Jairus. So here comes Jairus, running into Matthew's house. People there probably know who he is. He's a local religious head honcho. They probably figure that he's come to join the debate with Jesus. You can envision the other armchair theologians in the room looking expectantly for whatever profound question wise old Jairus has come up with to stump this nobody from Nazareth. 
until they see the panic on his face. This man of dignity has become undone by a father's desperation to protect his child. We meet Jairus in a moment of crisis, and so we get to see his knee-jerk reaction of, of where he puts his trust in the face of, of this fearsome circumstance. And he doesn't run to any sort of medical man or even to the rabbis for prayer, but the ruler comes and kneels before the king, the greater ruler. In a room full of, of Jewish skeptics, the most powerful Jew in the room bows down before Jesus. They're thinking, this Jairus is a man of God. They would have expected that in his hour of need, he would be the one to pray to Yahweh. He knows the name that God gave himself in Exodus 15, 26, Adonai Rofecha, the Lord who heals you. He's expected to get on his knees and pray like we often do. Lord, stretch out your healing hand on my loved one. But that's exactly what he's doing, isn't it? What's portrayed here is nothing less than a faithful Israelite praying to Yahweh in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. There is more theological drama happening just in this first verse, verse 18. Look at the very last phrase. And she will live. He doesn't say, please help me if you can. There are no doubts here. Here Jairus is admitting that that Jesus' authority transcends even the inescapability of death. But because of this profound faith that he has, Jairus makes an entirely inappropriate request. Jairus, this Jew of Jews, is asking Jesus to come touch a dead person. You don't do that. Numbers 19.11 Whoever touches the corpse of a person shall be unclean for seven days. And that's not the only problem. Not only does it seem to go against Jewish law, but Jesus, of course, doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. And whenever Jesus does something unexpected or unnecessary, we're supposed to ask, well, what's the point being made? So let's ask, why touch? The concept that we've already mentioned from Isaiah, of God's healing hand is, is one that we actually talk about all the time. You can count the times in any given prayer meeting how many times God's hand is mentioned. And it's good. It's appropriate. But the fact that we pray this way demonstrates that, that the profound impact it had on the world for Jesus to, to have healed in such a tactile and, and personal way. The personally delivered salvation that Jesus offered these people by touching them has clearly had an impact on the way that the church thinks and speaks. Jesus was not unaware of the fact that caring for people is something that takes more than words. Your parents or friends or elders or deacons or teachers or employers or whoever can say that they care for you. And they may very well care for you in their hearts. But we all know that care is just something you show. Care looks like sacrificing time and energy. It looks like bandaging the wound. It looks like listening well, 
having a difficult conversation when need be. It looks like making a meal. Jesus knew that. And so it's not for nothing that he touched people. And the tenderness of Jesus' hand is also a theological fulfillment. Jairus and his fellow Jews would have read the Old Testament and used the term the hand of the Lord often in reference to judgment. But the prophets again spoke of a future day of the Lord when, when God's healing hand would come and protect them and bring them back from disaster. And so here, Jairus is giving Jesus the opportunity, whether he knows it or not, to showcase that the day of God's healing hand has come. Let's go back to the story now, though. <clears throat> Think of the shock that overtook the room when, when Jairus pleads for this. And notice that Jesus responds by saying nothing. Just a few verses ago, the leaders were complaining about Jesus being in close contact with tax collectors and and sinners. And now the text says Jesus just got up and, and followed. He had no qualms about this request. His, his immediate and, and his silent action sends the message, you think tax collectors are bad, how about a corpse? And he just leaves them with their mouth open. The Messianic mission to seek and save the lost includes Jesus taking on the problem of death. It isn't just that Jesus is tender because he's a nice guy. Part of his mission to us is a caring mission. Jesus simply got up and went because it is entirely within his purview to care for this child by taking on death itself. Now look at the phrase in the middle of verse 18. The man says that his daughter had, had just died. So however strong Jairus' faith was, there is still an immense sense of urgency here. She's just right on the edge, Jesus. You've got to come. So he goes. The debates about kingship can wait. There is a daughter who needs some of Jesus' kingly care. So they're pushing their way towards the edge of the crowd, to the road that leads to the man's house. And as we read it, we want the next words to be, and when they got to the house... But the words don't come. Instead, look at verse 20. Matthew interrupts his own story. Behold a woman. That is a plot twist. That is the, the New Testament equivalent of cutting the commercial break right before the big reveal. And just like any good commercial break, it raises the tension in the story. But it also does something else. <clears throat> I think that, that Matthew is trying to double down on the lesson being taught here. Notice that as Jesus is led by Jairus to, to touch this unclean, beloved daughter of 12 years, he's interrupted by being touched by another suffering daughter who's been unclean for 12 years. Another daughter in need of healing, more kingly care needed, more interaction with the unclean. That's what happens as we meet the second character, the shy woman who interrupts. And the irony here is that she was actually doing everything in her power to not end up in the story. Mark and Luke tell us that she was just trying to touch the edge of his garment and, and get away afterwards so as to not draw any attention to herself. 
Jesus was the one to bring things to a stop. Mark and Luke tell us also that she was healed as soon as she touched Jesus. But Jesus stopped, turned, saw her, and spoke to her because he still had some kingly caring to do for her. Let's ask three, let's ask and answer three brief questions about this woman. First question is, what is the significance of her discharge of blood? For the last 12 years, this woman had been like the opposite of King Midas. Everywhere she sat, everyone she touched would have been turned unclean. Those are the laws we find in Leviticus chapter 15. What for other Israelite women was a monthly experience which God used to, to teach his people about the distinctions of holiness and unholiness, purity and, and impurity, was for this woman a 12-year sentence as a liturgical and ceremonial outcast. The liturgy, if you will, the, the physical process of her being cast out has the same function for us today as it did for the Israelites since the time of Moses. And, and that function is this, that she is a mirror. A mirror. Yes, we should feel bad for her, and yes, we could empathize with her. But she's not in the story simply to teach us about how tender Jesus is. When we look at her like a mirror, we see how filthy and defiled we really are. We need restorative healing care. Her constant discharge of blood that kept her ritually unclean is a reminder of our constant discharge of sin that keeps us impure. And that impurity requires the ruler of heaven to call us outcasts for the sake of protecting heaven's purity. You can't mix impurity with purity or else you just get more impurity. So we haven't learned the significance of her discharge of blood until we recognize our unworthiness to come before Jesus. The second question we have to ask and answer is, is how does she relate to Jairus and the other people in this story? For 12 years, she couldn't attend public worship. And if you think about it, Jairus was probably the one to make sure she didn't show up. The ruler of the synagogue, the one so familiar with all the, the liturgies of, of purity, watched as Jesus did what Jairus had no authority to do. Jesus welcomed her into the people of God. The condition for acceptance in, the, in Jesus' kingdom had, had nothing to do with the things that separated Jairus and, and the woman. She was a man, or he was a man, she was a woman. He was a religious ruler, she was a religious outcast. He apparently owned a home, she probably didn't. He had children, she probably didn't. It was a great social and power imbalance here. And Jesus redeems it by putting her first. His mission to both was the same. The condition of salvation was the same. Faith in the healer. As different as, as we all are in our worldly stations, there is no partiality in the kingdom. There is no uh, 
other significant station that gathers us here together other than in Christ. We, we fundamentally have this in common, that, that we need the care of Christ. None of us are more or less worthy of that care, which by extension means that whatever we feel like we deserve or what someone else deserves, we are called to care for them. And this is especially so in a strange season where we could easily ignore that call by taking advantage, so to speak, of being socially distanced. I think that following Jesus here means that we are called to be creative and finding ways to give a caring touch, but at a physical distance. The third question we can ask of this woman is, why did she touch his robe? Of course, there was no magic in, in his robe, so that touching it brought instant healing. We know her faith was placed in Jesus himself, not his robe, because Jesus himself approves of her faith. Her saving faith was real, but, but she couldn't get herself to approach Jesus with confidence. And it was this low view of herself that Jesus addresses and cares for when he speaks to her. The care he provides for this woman comes in the words of assurance, take heart, daughter, or we could say, be courageous or strengthen your soul. Give yourself permission to well up with joy because of your faith, you are made well. The woman's more basic problem here was a heart problem. In other words, when her unclean blood flow stopped, it was a sign of her inner purity. She approaches Jesus for a physical solution, but he addresses an, an internal problem. Both of the external and, and internal, of course, was grace. But Jesus goes out of his way to care for her heart. He is active in his care, or if you will, he is aggressive with his grace. The hand of the Lord is, is ready and it is poised to touch our hearts. Jesus gave her the caring touch that so many of us are, are desperate for. The assurance that our defilement and our weaknesses in no way dampens or impedes Jesus' desire to care for us or his ability to care for us. Maybe, that, uh, maybe the woman thought that if she just brushed the, the little tassel on the end of his garment, that no one would see that she touched Jesus and made him unclean. But she learns, and, and we learn, that Jesus welcomes it. He welcomes the transaction that ultimately we see at the cross, the transaction where all of our, our filth and our sin is, is put on Jesus. It's nailed to the cross, and it's scourged by the wrath of God. And Jesus' perfect righteousness is put on us. In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus, he removes all reason to doubt our worthiness. He removes all reason to fear condemnation. The whole drama of the gospel is behind those two little words, take heart, daughter. Jesus' gospel is the tender care that our anxious hearts so desperately need. You are loved and you are righteous, and you can be no more or less a child of God than you are right now. Take heart. Jesus has a peace for you that transcends understanding. 
And look at the end of verse 22. Instantly, it says, she goes, from being a mirror of our sin to being a symbol of the spiritual restoration that Jesus performs in our hearts. That's more than a commercial break, isn't it? That is a drama within the drama. See, Jesus knows how thick-headed we are, and so he, he doubles down on, on the lesson being taught here. So Matthew picks up for us where he left off. Verse 23, here's the same lesson, but from a different daughter, intensified to the case of death. Here's our third ironic situation, a corpse that needs the king's care. Now, instead of, instead of going straight into the house when Jesus gets there, he feels like he needs to take the time to address the atmosphere. The commotion of, of the, the family members and friends and, and flute players and professional mourners would have been a pretty sig significant uh, commotion because Jairus was a, a pretty well-known guy. So you have to wonder, why did Jesus send the crowd away? Why didn't he say, hey, watch this? He was trying to put his kingly power on display. Why didn't he turn their mourning into dancing? Well, Jesus gives us an answer, and he says, because the girl is not dead, but sleeping. So we know the Bible uses a word for sleep to speak figuratively about death. But the problem is that Jesus is using a different word here. He's saying something basically like, she's taking a nap. And so this girl is somehow dead, not dead, and sleeping. Confused yet? That's how Jairus probably felt. And that's why it's no surprise that the crowd laughed at Jesus. Now, of course, he isn't against funerals. But he sent these people away because, because mourning is not the proper response to a temporary condition like death, or like sleep, excuse me. So he sent the crowd away to illustrate that death is like a sleep, that death is a temporary condition. To be physically dead is not to be ultimately dead, but only temporarily dead. And it's only appropriate that Jesus is the one who sends them away because Jesus is the one who turns death into sleep. When he touches the uncleanness of the dead girl, it's as if he gets it on himself and, and he carries it all the way through the rest of his ministry to the cross and he leaves it there. Our culture has been confronted with death in recent year in a way that hasn't happened in a very long time. We can picture easily doctors and, and nurses dressed head to toe in protective equipment. They faithfully go to work on, on COVID patients, running the risk of, of catching it themselves. But would any of them willingly touch their dying patient, hoping to take it on themselves, if they could just transfer to them their, their health and vitality. But in Jesus, we have one who throws off any barrier to our sickness and our death and is happy to catch it, so to speak. Jesus takes your death so that you can take his resurrection life. That's why death is not final. Christ puts your death to death at the cross. Look at your salvation pictured here in this 12-year-old girl. 
Jesus goes into the house. He goes into the room where the little girl is. His touch doesn't look like dramatic theatrics. He takes his hand in, he takes her hand in, in his hand. And Jesus' tender touch brings resurrection power. In this moment, we see the authority of a king, we see the power of an eternal God, and we see the sweet and tender care of our covenant partner. Two unclean daughters, two mirrors that show us from bad to worse what we really are. Whatever pity we feel for them, we are the more to be pitied. Not because we are victims of uncleanliness, but because our hands and our hearts and our tongues are factories of uncleanliness. Listen again to what Isaiah says in 59, verses 2 and 3. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. How could Jesus care for us? How could he touch us? That is exactly how much he cares for you that he would do that. Behold, the arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. Look, Jesus not only takes your daily discharge of sin, but he goes all the way to taking the death that you owe. Praise the Lord that we serve a king who cares so much. Verse 26 tells us that this report went throughout all the area. And if you will, it's rippled over uh, the world through time and it's been carried by these pages into this room this morning. Your king says to you, take heart. And unless you decide to, to stand in the way of this good news, it doesn't just stop at your heart, but it, it continues to flow out of you. Because after all, the, the character of the king shapes the character of the kingdom. There's a common extension of the metaphor, uh, the hand of the Lord, isn't there? We often speak of us being the, the hands and feet of Jesus. And again, that's good and it's appropriate because we are called to minister to each other after the fashion of Jesus, representing Jesus to one another. Consider your own hands. There are the hands of Jesus. He bought them and he taught us how to use them. When he touched us and took on willfully all of our sin on himself. Touched people touching others who don't deserve it with the tender care of Jesus. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what Christ the King Church is supposed to look like. We are called to look like our king. Let's pray. Gracious, caring, loving God, we thank you, Lord, for your powerful and tender touch. We ask, Lord, that you would make us a people so humbled 
by what you've done for us. Lord, that you would come, that you would come and, and, and take on our, our sinfulness. Lord, thank you for, for Jesus and all that he's done. We pray, Lord, that, that we would follow our King's pattern, that we would be people who care deeply and practically for one another. Seal these words to our hearts, Lord, in your son's precious name.